Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A fierce debate over President Biden's plan to cancel student debt for millions of Americans. Is he doing enough or too much? Texas published a list of companies that the state is partly boycotting. Those are financial companies that boycott fossil fuels. A fee on greenhouse gas emissions is coming. It's the first of its kind. Congress passed it as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Congress is paying closer attention to UFO sightings. Lawmakers want the Pentagon to create a new office on the issue. More migrant adults apprehended at the border. Find out what they are doing to exploit the U.S. immigration system. And more buses of illegal immigrants arrive in New York City from Texas. You may no longer owe thousands of dollars in student debt. President Biden announced his student loan relief plan Wednesday. It'll affect millions of Americans, possibly the largest program of its kind ever. But the White House is facing mounting criticism. Some say it's not enough, while others call it an unfair transfer of wealth that could make inflation worse. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Fierce debate over student debt. On the one side, does Biden's plan go far enough? Again, it's a start, but um, there's more work to be done. The new plan extends the loan repayment freeze for a final time through December 31st, cancels $10,000 of loans for those without a Pell Grant, and $20,000 for those with one. To qualify, you must earn less than $125,000. For couples, the cutoff is $250,000. Many economists argue the debt forgiveness and freeze on repayments allow people to spend money on other things, which would undermine efforts to cool down record high inflation. We're probably going to do more to increase inflation from debt cancellation than any inflation reduction from from the Inflation Reduction Act. The University of Penn Wharton estimates the plan could cost taxpayers around $300 billion. A reporter asked the White House Wednesday who will pay for it. He did not get a direct answer, but the press secretary said borrowers will have to start repaying again in January. Uh, when you think about the, the $4 billion that are going, that's going to go back uh, into, as, as revenue, back into uh, this process of folks uh, paying, paying right, their college tuition, that matters as well. Another question is, who exactly will benefit? A 2020 study by Brookings Institution says almost 60% of education debt is owed by 40% of the highest income households. Lindsay Burke at the Heritage Foundation described Biden's plan as a debt transfer. She told NTD Business Wednesday it benefits the wealthiest the most. So canceling student loans, extending the pause on repayments is overwhelmingly benefiting the wealthiest Americans at the expense of the working class. This is an incredibly regressive policy. She said she believes Biden's plan will further inflate college costs in the future. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The Department of Homeland Security announced it has officially put an end to the controversial Disinformation Governance Board. That's months after the newly created board was paused amid concern that it would be weaponized against dissenting voices and become a tool for government censorship. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas first announced the Disinformation Government Board initiative in late April. That's when he was asked at a hearing what the DHS was doing to ensure election security in the lead-up to the 2022 midterms. Shortly after the announcement, Senator Josh Hawley raised concerns that the board may be used to police speech. About three weeks later, Nina Jankowitz, who was tapped by the White House to head the board, 
said she had submitted her resignation and confirmed that the board's work was paused. The Epic Times contacted the DHS for comment. The Department of Justice on Wednesday released a 2019 memo on former President Donald Trump in connection with the Mueller investigation. The memo is dated March 24, 2019. It claims none of Trump's actions documented in Mueller's report should be viewed as obstruction of justice. Those actions include firing former FBI Director James Comey and telling a top White House lawyer to fire Special Counsel Robert Mueller. The memo asserts there was considerable evidence that Trump believed the investigation was politically motivated and, quote, undermined his administration's efforts to govern. The Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit three years ago to make the document public. A federal appeals court rejected the Justice Department arguments against releasing the memo. A Department of Justice spokesperson confirmed the memo's authenticity. Mueller's probe concluded that Trump did not collude with the Russian government to influence the 2016 election. Congress is imposing a first-of-its-kind fee on greenhouse gas emissions. The new rule is part of the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, was recently signed into law by President Biden. It includes a provision intended to give the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, power to cut greenhouse gas emissions. The EPA will be allowed to impose a fee on certain so-called climate pollutions. It's the first time the federal government has ever imposed a fee on any greenhouse gas emission. Back in June, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the EPA didn't have the authority to essentially force power plants to transition more towards wind and solar. Now, according to the Environmental Defense Fund, things have changed after Congress passed the IRA. They say by passing the act, Congress has reaffirmed that greenhouse gases are air pollutants. The Environmental Defense Fund says that these new changes made by the IRA reinvigorate EPA's responsibilities under the law, addressing the climate crisis and longstanding inequities with new tools, new solutions, unprecedented investments, additional policies, and with great urgency. The IRA includes several tax credits, incentives, and grants totaling almost $370 billion for energy security and climate change investments. But incentives aren't the only tool the IRA utilizes regarding the oil and gas sector. The EPA now has the authority to impose changes on oil and gas power plants. Some facilities exceeding a specific methane threshold will have to pay $900 per metric ton of methane starting in 2024. And starting in 2026 and beyond, the cost will be $1,500 per metric ton of methane. Methane emissions accounted for 11% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in 2020. CO2 accounted for almost 80%. However, methane is considered more potent than CO2. Some environmental experts say its impact on climate is 25 to 72 times greater than an equivalent mass of CO2. Texas has released a list of financial companies that boycott fossil fuels. Texas state government entities now have to part ways with those companies. Here are the details. ESG stands for the Environmental, Social and Governance Movement. On Wednesday, Texas released a list of 10 financial companies and hundreds of funds said to be boycotting energy firms involved in fossil fuels, which conforms to the environmental part of the ESG movement. The Texas State Comptroller must publish such a list thanks to a bill which came into effect last year. It requires many state government entities to divest from ESG-led companies and funds. On Wednesday, the Texas State Comptroller explained the reasoning for the bans. 
The ESG movement has produced an opaque and perverse system in which some financial companies no longer make decisions in the best interest of their shareholders or their clients, but instead use their financial clout to push a social and political agenda shrouded in secrecy. Among the 10 listed companies is investment company BlackRock and a number of banks. A spokesperson for BlackRock responded to the Texas ban saying, this is not a fact-based judgment. Multiple state agencies, including the Employee Retirement System of Texas, the Teacher Retirement System of Texas, and Texas Municipal Retirement System must divest from the listed funds and companies. There are, however, carve-outs. One exemption allows entities to avoid divestment that would conflict with an entity's legal responsibilities. Another exemption applies to funds held indirectly. Some say the law's loopholes could undermine its effectiveness. Others say Texas' approach negatively affects the state's economy. BlackRock says elected and appointed public officials have a duty to act in the best interests of the people they serve. Politicizing state pension funds, restricting access to investments, and impacting the financial returns of retirees is not consistent with that duty. Texas is not the only state going against ESG. On Tuesday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis requested that his state's fund managers purge their investments of ESG. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill appear to have a growing interest in UFO sightings. A new budget bill for the intelligence community touches on the issue. Here are the details. The 2023 fiscal year budget bill for the intelligence community and an accompanying report by the Senate Intelligence Committee made several references to UFOs. The bill indicates that Congress believes some unidentified aerial phenomena might not be man-made. It also notes that UFO threats against U.S. national security have been increasing exponentially. The bill seeks to modify a section of the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022. It would establish an organization nestled inside the Pentagon within 120 days after the bill becomes law. This organization called Unidentified Aerospace Undersea Phenomena Joint Program Office will replace the Pentagon's Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. The scope of this new office will now include space, atmospheric, and water domains. It will also be tasked with duties pertaining to transmedium objects or devices and unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena and currently unknown technology and other domains. Lawmakers said in the report, quote, that change reflects the broader scope of the effort directed by the Congress Identification, Classification, and Scientific Study of Unidentified Aerospace Undersea Phenomena is an inherently challenging cross-agency, cross-domain problem, requiring an integrated or joint intelligence community and DOD approach. But the scope of the new office will not include UFOs that are later found to be man-made. Pentagon officials are treating unidentified aerial phenomena sightings with more seriousness. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence released a report in June last year on the subject. In it, the Pentagon identified 144 unidentified aerial phenomena sightings from 2004 to 2021, but was only able to explain one. Since the report came out, the task force database has now grown to contain roughly 400 reports. President Biden has appointed Kimberly Cheetel to be the next Secret Service Director. Cheetel worked for the service for more than 25 years. She was part of the Vice Presidential Productive Division during Biden's time as Vice President. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas expressed confidence in Cheetel's ability to excel in the position. 
the Supreme Court of New Mexico decided unanimously that illegal immigrants will be allowed to practice law in the state. The court says the usual requirements to practice law shall remain in place, but a license can't be denied based solely on the applicant's citizenship or immigration status. Kurt Levy is a conservative legal critic and the president of the Committee for Justice. He says the decision seemed more political than legal. He said it's bizarre that you can be in New Mexico illegally, subject to arrest and deportation, and yet you could still represent another legal immigrant who's facing the same thing. In a statement, New Mexico's chief justice said the change is grounded in the principles of fairness and is, quote, consistent with New Mexico's historical values of inclusion and diversity in its culture. Now we turn to the U.S. southern border. Border Patrol agents are apprehending illegal crossers who are looking to exploit the country's immigration system. We take a closer look at this and how more buses of illegal immigrants are heading to the East Coast. Our next guest has a background in counterterrorism and homeland security intelligence. He helps us navigate this complex issue. Joining us now is Todd Benzman, who is a senior national security fellow with the Center for Immigration Studies. He's also the author of America's Covert Border War. Great to have you back on the show, Todd. Good to be here. Thank you. Border Patrol recently caught hundreds of illegal immigrant adults pretending to be children. Is this a common phenomenon or is this something new? It's a common phenomenon. Ever since the Biden administration announced that no child would be left behind in Mexico, that everybody uh, who's under uh, 17, 18, 17 gets in permanently forever, and that we will pay for them to be reunited with relatives anywhere in the country, they've been gaming the system. Uh, We see it all the time, 20-year-olds, 22, whatever, if they look young, They're claiming to be in the age range that's getting in. Why not, right? And most of the time, they don't have identification. Oh, I lost it. I don't have a birth certificate. I can't prove it. So we give them the benefit of the doubt at the border, and that's why they're doing it. Why not? I'd do it too, maybe. Let's talk about the sheer scope of this. About 5 million migrants illegally crossed the U.S. border in the 18 months since President Biden took office. Can you give us an idea as to how this relates to legitimate asylum seekers versus irresponsible border management that creates a risk for those fleeing their country, making the treacherous journey? Well, I think people have to understand that the asylum law, as it's written, uh, provides an immediate off-ramp to mandatory deportation and detention. If you say the magic words, you get in past Border Patrol. It doesn't matter whether you actually pursue an asylum claim. Uh, Most of them don't. They just use it to get past Border Patrol. So it's a device. And everybody knows it. Uh, The immigrant uh, community knows it. The migrant advocates know it. And the Biden administration knows it. But everybody just kind of looks the other way and says, they're asylum seekers. Most of these are economic migrants. They are not fleeing any kind of persecution, government persecution whatsoever. And so judges uh, turn them down in in the majority, in the vast majority, 80, 90 percent. But when they get turned down, they can't be deported because we don't do deportations anymore. So whether they win, lose or draw, they're in on the asylum law, the way it's written. Well, thanks for breaking that down for us. Now, yesterday, five more busloads of migrants arrived in New York City at Texas Governor Greg Abbott's direction. The city is known for being a sanctuary, but is it able to handle this influx? 
Well, I know that the mayors of these cities are complaining uh, suddenly only when uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, started providing free bus rides to those cities uh, to anybody who wanted to go there. But the fact of the matter is that illegal immigrants have been pouring into New York for 18 months straight, flooding their schools, uh, loading up their ESL, English as a Second Language programs. They're have, they've been for months having to contend with illegal immigrant influxes into the city right out of their border. Same with Washington, D.C. It's just odd that anybody's complaining about it all of a sudden now that some free bus rides. Uh, without the free bus rides from Texas, they just board their own buses for $100 or something and, and head to New York anyway. Uh, they are having to contend with this. They, they want to. They are sanctuary cities. That tells the immigrants, come here, come one, come all, we'll take care of you. Very it's interesting on. analysis. Todd Benzman, Center for Immigration Studies, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, the widow of basketball legend Kobe Bryant is awarded $16 million in a lawsuit. She sued over photos of the crash that killed her husband and daughter. And the drought in Texas is taking a toll on the state's cows. No grass is growing, so the cows don't have enough food, and farmers are forced to make tough decisions. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. A jury on Wednesday awarded the widow of late basketball star Kobe Bryant $16 million. That's in response to photos allegedly shared of the helicopter crash that killed her husband and daughter in January 2020. Here's more. Vanessa Bryant was present in the L.A. courthouse when the verdict was read after an 11-day trial. She had sued Los Angeles County, alleging invasion of privacy, accusing members of the sheriffs and fire departments of sharing graphic images of the crash in unofficial settings, including to patrons in a bar. Seven other people died in the crash in Calabasas, California in 2020. Another plaintiff in Bryant's lawsuit, who lost his wife and daughter in the crash, was awarded another $15 million. Vanessa Bryant also filed lawsuits against the helicopter charter company as well as the deceased pilot's estate. The county already agreed to pay $2.5 million to settle a similar case brought by families of others who died in the crash. Kobe Bryant was 41 when he died. The Los Angeles Lakers' great and 18-time All-Star won five NBA championships and was elected to the Hall of Fame the year he died. The Uvalde, Texas school board on Wednesday fired the school district's embattled police chief. That's in response to his handling of what became the deadliest school shooting in nearly a decade. The massacre at Robb Elementary School in May left 19 children as well as two teachers dead. Texas officials say at the time, Pete Arredondo acted as incident commander in charge of law enforcement's response to the shooting. Parents of children both killed and wounded demanded his dismissal since the incident. Classmates and relatives of the victims were present in the meeting. The board's decision was unanimous. Arredondo, who was also forced to resign from his seat on the Uvalde City Council in July, did not attend the meeting. A written statement from his attorney was emailed to board members citing death threats and what Arredondo said was the district's lack of effort to provide any protection for him. A teacher strike continues into the first day of classes in Ohio's largest school district. Some of the district's 47,000 students and their parents showed support for the teachers. 
My kids have gone to schools with leaking ceilings, mold, infestations. Um, we've asked the PTA for money to help provide basic needs like paper. They don't have school textbooks. Um, we've had to drop off bottled water because the drinking fountains don't work. Me being a senior, I haven't had a like a normal year because like COVID, hybrid, it's just really crazy how this is going on now that it could have been prevented if the school board is listening to the teachers needs the first time. Strikers and supporters gathered at schools across the Columbus School District with plans to picket for hours. They want safer buildings, better heating and air conditioning, smaller class sizes, and a more well-rounded curriculum. It's the union's first strike in the district since 1975. Union members voted to reject the school board's final offer late Sunday. The school district and the union resumed bargaining Wednesday afternoon. The school board said that its offer to the union puts children first. The Columbus Education Association represents more than 4,000 teachers, librarians, nurses, and other employees. It isn't clear how many of those 4,000 members were not on the job Wednesday. The tens of thousands of students in the district are now starting the school year with remote education. They're accessing lesson plans and videos through their schools without a teacher to guide them. It's a start that has some parents concerned. Kentucky's governor is touting new state legislation targeting areas hit hard by recent floods. At least 39 people were killed in the flooding that tore through the eastern part of the state last month. Thousands are left without homes, while businesses and schools are destroyed. Governor Andy Bashir said Wednesday the eastern Kentucky flood relief legislation would provide relief to those flood-ravaged communities. The package would send millions of dollars to areas named in the presidential declaration of major disaster. Communities could then use that money to pay for personnel and services used during the flood, as well as their recovery. The money could also be allocated for water and infrastructure projects and to repair or replace bridges and roads destroyed by floodwaters. Bashir says school districts in those communities can also receive money to help them as they wait for their insurance claims and FEMA disaster assistance. A lawsuit claims Whole Foods isn't telling the whole truth about its products. The grocery chain markets some of its meat as antibiotic-free, but Farm Forward, an advocacy nonprofit, says they tested some of the meat and found antibiotics. Antibiotics are used on factory farms to prevent the spread of disease among the animals in close conditions, but scientists warn that this, along with overuse of antibiotics in humans, leads to strains of bacteria that can overpower the antibiotics. The CDC estimates that over 35,000 Americans die each year from infections of such antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Farm Forward says they found antibiotic residue even in meat that was labeled Animal Warefare Certified and USDA Organic. The nonprofit alleges that the meat industry uses health food certifications to trick customers into paying more. Neither Whole Foods nor parent company Amazon immediately responded to requests for comment. Texas is the top beef-producing state in the U.S., and a drought gripping ranchers is forcing them to reduce the size of their herds. That trend will likely mean higher prices for consumers. The Caney Creek Ranch is about halfway between Houston and Dallas, and owner Wesley Radcliffe and his herd are weathering a hot, dry summer. Texas, the nation's top beef-producing state, is in the grips of a drought that's forcing ranchers such as Ratcliffe to pick between raising cows or slaughtering them. Ratcliffe has already begun to cull, selling 50 animals from his 500-head herd earlier this year. When the drought first hit, 
We booked and shipped 50 mama cows. They were older mama cows, and they might have gone and had another baby for us. But rather than wait on them to have another baby, we went on and shipped them to the, to the meat factory. And I'll call it a meat factory to make it sound good. Since mid-July, more than 93% of Texas was in drought, ranging from moderate to exceptional drought, according to the United States Drought Monitor. Exceptional drought, or D4, the highest level, is classified by widespread loss of pastures and crops, as well as water shortages in reservoirs, streams, and wells, creating emergencies. As of the middle of August, more than a quarter of Texas was in exceptional drought. And you see that playing out here at the East Texas Livestock Auction in Crockett. The grass is gone. The cows are beginning to lose weight. The cows are weak because there's no protein. So we're getting rid of a lot of cows. Paul Craycraft is a co-owner of this auction. He said in normal times, most of the cows bought here are put to pasture, with just a minority going to the slaughterhouse. But the drought changed that. Normally you'll see maybe 40% uh, of the cows in a sale will be slaughtered, or maybe 30%. As it is, 75% for the last two months are going to slaughter. They're not going back home because home has no grass. More cows sold to slaughter means fewer mature cows birthing calves. Texas accounts for as much as 14% of the U.S. cattle herd, and one way or another, consumers are going to feel the effects of the drought at the butcher shop and the grocery store. The pressure will be on for higher prices, higher cattle prices, higher beef prices over the next several years as the effects of this are felt. And so, you know, from a consumer standpoint, uh, we're going to face tighter supplies of beef and tighter supplies of beef with nothing else going on means higher prices. Despite the hardship, Wesley Radcliffe keeps in mind this isn't his first drought. We had a drought in 2011 and people dropped out of the industry. I, I sold a few cows in 2011, I didn't sell a lot of them, and I was so glad I didn't because when the market picked back up, I was able to sell cows that I wouldn't have been able to sell for the price that I was getting for them. He says he'll again try and buckle down and pray for rain. Dinosaur tracks that are 113 million years old have been exposed in Texas. That's after an ongoing drought dried up parts of the river covering them. The tracks come from the bottom of the Paluxy River in Glen Rose, Texas. They look a lot like a Tyrannosaurus rex track, but this animal lived um, uh, almost as far behind Tyrannosaurus rex as Tyrannosaurus rex is behind us in time. Um, so it's an animal, it's a dinosaur called Acrocanthosaurus from 113 million years ago. Um, it was a bipedal, you know, two-legged carnivore, um, small arms, very much like a Tyrannosaurus rex, but a little bit smaller. Uh, but it was still a pretty large, a large creature. They, they, they were about seven tons or so when they were big. Uh, so not a small, it's not a small critter for sure. And uh, they uh, walked through the limey, muddy seashore on uh, the edge of the, the Cretaceous uh, Ocean that ran through what's now the United States. Dinosaurs made the prints as they roamed muddy areas over 100 million years ago. Shortly after formation, they were covered over with sediment due to a flood, which later turned into limestone and protected the prints. Once exposed, like they are now due to the drought, the prints start to erode just like any other rocks, and one strong flood could wash them away forever. Since mid-July, over 90% of Texas has been in a drought. As of mid-August, more than 26% of Texas was at its highest drought level, characterized by widespread loss of pastures and crops, as well as water shortages. The U.S. Coast Guard rescued a Belgian man after his 32-foot boat ran aground three nautical miles off the coast of Puerto Rico. The Coast Guard says the man was the only person aboard the sailing vessel when his boat ran aground. 
He was traveling from the Caribbean island of St. Martin to the Dominican Republic. The sailor sent out a distress signal and a Coast Guard helicopter from Puerto Rico responded. The guardsman threw down a rope and lifted him out of the water. The man was not injured. The Coast Guard said they were able to locate him quickly before sunset because he was traveling with proper emergency equipment. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, China's largest freshwater lake is now a meadow after intense drought, and a heat wave has dimmed what was once the brightest spot of the country's financial hub as the Chinese try to save power. And many universities in the U.S. have cut ties with Beijing's controversial Confucius Institutes, saying they trample on academic freedom. But what are Canadian universities doing? Find out after the break. Welcome back. Next, we have an update on the heat wave scorching parts of China. It's causing major drought in some places, and it's drying up the country's largest freshwater lake. And the lights of a major skyline were dimmed to conserve energy. Tiffany Meyer has that and more in today's China in Focus. Chinese state broadcaster CCTV showed comparison images of Pyongyang Lake taken by satellite, one from late April and the other from August. While these two images show a five-day difference from August 16th to the 21st, the lake covered over 1,500 square miles in April. Now it extends only around 230 square miles. Poyang Lake is located in one of the Yangtze River's floodplains in southeast China's Jiangxi province. It's often described as China's kidney for the way it helps regulate the nation's water supply. According to CCTV, the lake now is nearly 70 percent smaller than its average size over the last 10 years. Drone footage and images reveal that in some places, the lake now looks more like grasslands. Swath of China remained under the highest level heat advisory Tuesday, marking the 12th day in a row. Forecasters say the heat wave is expected to let up in parts of central China by Wednesday and in southwestern China alongside the Yangtze River in roughly a week. Shanghai's famous skyline lights went dark on Monday and Tuesday. It's part of efforts to save on power. That's as southwestern China extends curbs on electricity use amid the region's ongoing heat wave. The lights went out in Shanghai's Riverside Bund area and parks of the financial district, including the city's landmark, the Oriental Pearl Tower. The area has been struggling amid dwindling hydropower output and surging household electricity demand during the heat wave. The darkened skyline comes after the city took heavy criticism on Chinese social media platform Weibo. Users blamed Shanghai for indirectly causing a power cut in parts of Sichuan province. That's because of overuse of electricity. Power generation provinces like Sichuan province have been affected by the pandemic and power generation must have been affected. If our Shanghai government imposes consumption restrictions, it will help ease the supply of electricity. Another resident noted that switching off the skyline is also good for the environment. Now we'd like to take a moment to answer a question from our audience. One viewer wrote in asking whether there are Confucius Institutes operating in Canada. 
Just in case you need a refresher, Beijing touts the state-funded Confucius Institutes as language and culture exchange programs. They partner with schools and universities overseas, but have been accused of trying to expand the Chinese Communist Party's ideology and influence. According to our own investigation, right now at least nine Confucius Institutes, or CIs, are operating in Canada. One inside the country's Brock University closed in 2020, another in British Columbia's Institute of Technology closed in 2019. Earlier, the Toronto District School Board voted to end its CI partnership in 2024. New Brunswick intends to phase its CI partnership out by 2022, when its current contract expires. Some of those still running have partnered with local public school boards, including the Edmonton and Coquitlam School Districts in British Columbia. The rest operate in universities or colleges, like the University of Waterloo, Carleton University in Ottawa, and Seneca College in Toronto. Another in St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia recently rebranded. It's now called the Confucius China Studies Program. Most agreements between CIs and their educational partners ignore academic freedom, with the CIs asking schools to abide by Chinese laws and Beijing's teaching framework. Numbers of new Confucius Institutes opening in Canada saw a surge between 2007 and 2012. They began to decline later, amid fears about academic freedom violations and potential Chinese espionage activities. No new CIs have opened in Canada since 2012. A former CI teacher, Sonia Zhao, disclosed that she was trained to repeat Beijing's narratives if students ask about topics China deems sensitive, like Tibet. She was also asked to sign a contract that excluded Falun Gong practitioners from applying. Her story was later featured in a documentary called In the Name of Confucius. An ongoing petition on change.org is calling for the closure of all remaining CIs in British Columbia. The chief of Japan's National Police Agency is resigning. He says the country needs a fresh start after the murder of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He says that in order to prevent something like it from happening again, they need a new system and a new security plan. The police chief is the most senior official to step down in connection with Abe's assassination. The former prime minister was shot and killed at a campaign rally on July 8th. Experts have said security was seriously flawed. They say bodyguards could have saved Abe by shielding him or pulling him from the line of fire. They had two and a half seconds between the missed first shot and the second fatal round of gunfire. The local police chief also announced his resignation. And just ahead, Ukrainian soldiers and refugees are keeping warm and fed with a special dish. It's a soup called borscht, and it's a favorite comfort food for many Ukrainians. Find out more right here on NTD News. Russia launched a rocket attack on the eastern Ukrainian town of Chaplin. At least 25 civilians were killed and dozens more injured. Footage shows residents of the town mourning in the ruins of destroyed homes. The strikes come on Wednesday, Ukraine's Independence Day. The country was observing the 31st anniversary of its freedom from Soviet rule. The day also marked six months since Russian troops invaded Ukraine. An aide to President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russian forces launched two shelling attacks on Chaplin. In the first one, a boy was killed when a missile hit his house. Rockets then struck a train station. Several cars of a passenger train were burned, causing more casualties. 
Russia's defense ministry has denied targeting civilians in the attacks. It claims that the train that was hit was used for military purposes. Borscht is one of Ukraine's most cherished national dishes. Now it's nourishing soldiers on the front line and refugees. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. Just in front of the Lviv railway station, Andriy Nimitz has been serving borscht since the beginning of the war. At the start of the war, volunteers were cooking around 8,000 portions a day. Now that most of the refugees have left, 100 servings is enough. When the refugees came here, it warmed them not only because it was hot, but because it's our Ukrainian borscht. So they understood that they had come home. Even though they had lost their home, here they were served with borscht. Only it was prepared with a different recipe. This soup is a favorite dish and comfort food for many Ukrainians, and there are hundreds of recipes across Eastern Europe. We have it in various versions. Uh, for myself, I know uh, 340 variations of borscht. The classic ingredients are beetroot, meat, potatoes, onions, carrots, and cabbage. Variations of borscht can include mushrooms, sweet peppers, fish, or even cherries. Cherry borscht inspired Vesevolod and his team of chefs to organize a charity dinner. All of the proceeds will go to the Ukrainian army. I must say that the cherries are unexpectedly very tasty. The ideal addition to borscht. It's very interesting. I was pleasantly surprised by the cherries in the borscht. Lviv is known as the food capital of Ukraine, and borscht is on the menu at almost every restaurant. For me, borscht includes everything. It's sort of a combination. It's culture, nation, people, kindness, hospitality. It's the best, the most delicious. This is borscht. It comes from the kitchen, from gastronomy. It is sacred. That's the foundation. That's it. Ukraine and Russia fought over the origins of the dish long before the Russian invasion. But UNESCO sided with Ukraine in July and added Ukrainian borscht cooking culture to the list of intangible cultural heritage in need of urgent safeguarding. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, a ship from the UK is surveying the Pacific volcano that sent strong tsunami waves out from Tonga, but this ship has no crew and can be controlled from anywhere in the world. And one of the largest aristocratic collections in Hungary is on display to the public. It's how the Museum of Applied Arts in Budapest is celebrating its 150th anniversary. Find out more after the short break. Good to have you back. For the first time in 50 years, NASA plans to send humans back to the moon. A first step toward that goal takes place later this month with the launch of an unmanned rocket and the beginning of the Artemis program. A mega moon rocket on a slow 6.4 kilometer ride aboard a giant NASA crawler before reaching its launch pad this week. One of the final steps before the unmanned Artemis I begins a mission set to journey farther than any spacecraft built for humans before. 
It is the first time in about half a century that a NASA-built rocket is set for a lunar-bound liftoff. On August 29th, the Artemis I mission is set to begin a 42-day journey that travels around the moon before returning to Earth. Sitting atop its rocket is NASA's Orion astronaut capsule. Designed to separate from the rocket in space, it carries 54 kilograms of cargo, including a Commander Moonakin, a suited mannequin that can collect data on what a human crew might experience. Two other phantoms, Helga and Zohar, will be aboard made of material that mimics the soft tissue, organs and bones of a woman. This time the mission is unmanned, but the launch of the most powerful rocket ever built kicks off a more ambitious plan. This is the start of NASA's Artemis program, which aims to land on the lunar surface by 2025, eventually build a lunar base and make way for further exploration to Mars and maybe even beyond. And back to Earth, a robotic boat with no crew is remotely controlled from the UK. It's begun a survey of the underwater Tongan volcano that erupted last January. This robotic boat is gathering data on an underwater volcano in Tonga, while operators sit almost 10,000 miles away in southeast England. We've collected huge amounts of data to, uh, to help the, the scientists uh, understand a bit more about it. Our third mission, uh, which we're going out now, is to understand a little bit more about outside the volcano. The underwater Hunga Tonga Hunga Ha'apai volcano erupted in January, sending tsunami waves across the Pacific Ocean. Data collected here will help scientists understand why the eruption had such a huge and violent impact, as well as help predict the nature of future eruptions. With no crew, the USV Max Lemur is a fraction of the size of a normal survey ship that would carry 50 people and uses a tiny fraction of the fuel. The beauty of uh, unmanned surface vessels though, is that this bridge that I'm sitting in in Essex can be anywhere. So we can actually hand over the control of the vessel from this office to anywhere else in the world to control that vessel, which also can be anywhere in the world. The nearly 40-foot ship has completed two survey missions and will soon start a third off Tonga. Germany is betting that the future of trains is hydrogen power. The country is introducing the world's first entirely hydrogen-powered rail line through the town of Bremer Verda, about 50 miles east of Hamburg. Five of the 14 trains debuted on Wednesday. And all 14 will be up and running by the end of the year, replacing the diesel trains currently on the route. Hydrogen fuel is about four and a half times more efficient than diesel. The trains are quiet and can be carbon emissions free. They have a range of about 620 miles. That means they can run for an entire day on a single tank of hydrogen. Their top speed is 87 miles per hour. Regular speeds on the line are roughly between 50 and 75 miles per hour. Plans are in the works to use the trains in Italy and France as well. For the first time, the remains of one of the largest aristocratic collections in Hungary are on display to the public. The treasures were damaged and partly destroyed during the final months of World War II. On the 150th anniversary of the Museum of Applied Arts in Budapest, a special exhibition is underway. The Esterhazy artifacts were found in a bombed palace after they were damaged during the siege of Budapest in January 1945. Now they're on display for visitors. Unfortunately, war is such an issue now. In this context, it occurred to us that we have a collection of artifacts which, on one hand, defined the identity of our museum, and on the other hand, was almost completely destroyed in the siege of the Buddha castle in the Second World War. 
The Esterhazy treasury was established in the Ottoman War era. It grew through the 16th century onwards through diplomatic gifts, dowries, and acts of patronage. At the end of the 17th century, the Esterhazy family controlled the collection. During World War I, a selection of the artworks was transferred to the Museum of Applied Arts, where they were displayed until World War II. Whether on works of art or in other people's souls, destruction leaves an everlasting mark, traces of which can never be erased 100%. And that is why peace, not war, is always important. During the siege of Budapest, the family decided that the treasures would be safer in the family's home located in the Buda castle. But a few weeks after the items were transferred to the castle, the building was hit by bombs from advancing Russian troops. The treasury's remains were buried under the ruins for many years. The Museum of Applied Arts have been restoring these artifacts since the 50s, but we have never exhibited the wrecked or unrestored pieces. But now we thought that communicating about the horrors of war through the language of a museum could be a strong message. The exhibition is open to the public until September 25, 2022. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, chocolate lovers in New York are eating up a new kind of cream-filled croissant. Eager customers line up at the bakery to try the special treat, and the pastry goes viral on social media. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. Step aside, Cronut. A new viral pastry is in town. The chef says he had no idea his chocolatey creation would become so popular. Entity's Andrew Thomas reports. Every day, customers wait in line outside of Lafayette Grand Cafe and Bakery in New York. They're eager to try the Supreme, a circular croissant filled with a chocolate custard. Here's one customer who says it was worth the hour wait. The butteriness of the croissant. I'm very surprised. I thought that the chocolate would hit first, but the croissant is really is really something else. Do you ever get a chocolate croissant and you bite into it and it's kind of like, there's your little bite of chocolate. Like, this is obviously not the case. The Supreme has caused a recent sensation on TikTok and Instagram. Posts show customers tearing the pastries open and the creme anglaise-based ganache flowing out of the flaky treat. Scott Chue is the executive pastry chef for Lafayette Grand Cafe and Bakery. He says he had no idea his creation would go viral. Just finding a way to make a croissant not like they weren't fun to begin with, but like very visually um, appealing and, and fun to eat. Uh, we knew we were going to fill it like a donut and glaze it, so we wanted to make that work as well. So that's really where it came from. It's like making it like a fun draw into the bakery. The Supreme usually sells out in less than an hour and has every day since April. There's a limit of one per customer. It has to be eye-catching first. So I think like the look is very important. I think like the most important thing as a chef is to make sure like after your first bite, second bite, that your the experience of eating it lives up to that look, like what first drew you in in the first place. The bakery makes a total of 240 Supremes at 8 a.m. and noon daily. There's always a line of people around the block. The baked goods come in either chocolate or the flavor of the month and cost $8.50. For August, the special flavor is peaches and cream. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Don't underestimate any delivery guy like this young man from Domino's in Japan. He brought a pizza to a customer atop Mount Fiji, the country's highest peak. 
The order was placed by a hungry hiker on Mount Fiji. It took the young man about six hours to reach the summit. That's over 12,000 feet above sea level. The cost of running the errand was about $290. That's not much considering the challenge of the trip. The story is getting more responses on Twitter, gaining over 300,000 likes. Photos were shared of other delivery drivers from Domino's or Uber Eats climbing the mountain. It seems there's a trend to order food from the top of Mount Fiji. One would expect delivery staff to get a fair tip for such a trek. How many fungi and bacteria does your body contain at any one time? Trillions of them. Is this a good thing? Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. collective name for all those tiny critters in the category of bacteria, fungi and viruses is microbiome. Remember this word, these microscopic workers influence your health. As you grow your gut microbiome starts to diversify, that's a good thing. But if your microbiome is unbalanced the bad guys outnumber the good guys and that's an issue. The food you eat may be causing one or more of the following, upset stomach, unfamiliar changes in your stool, craving sugary foods, weight fluctuations, sleep disturbances, chronic fatigue, skin irritation and autoimmune conditions. If you answered yes, see your doctor first, it could be your gut. You can get bacterial overgrowth like yeast or parasites that affect your gut health. We have five tips to make improvements. Number one, prioritize sleep. This might surprise you, but poor sleeping patterns affect your gut health and create other problems. The general rule is 7-8 to eight hours. If you need assistance falling asleep, opt for natural herbal remedies before pharmaceuticals. Number 2. Stay hydrated. 8 glasses of water a day is best. Studies show staying hydrated is beneficial to the mucosal lining in the gut and helps bacterial maintenance. Number 3. Change your diet. Are you eating poorly or have you noticed weight fluctuations or low energy? Reduce sugar and go for plant foods and lean protein. Dietary fiber keeps waste moving. Number four, manage your stress. Stress is one of the top 10 contributors to disease. It impacts nearly every area of your body. Don't ignore it. What wholesome activities can you do that keep you calm? Maybe try a little meditation. Number five, take a probiotic. If indicators show your gut needs first aid, get advice and potentially try a supplement. Eat yogurt and other fermented foods like sauerkraut, miso, tempeh and kimchi. How your gut works determines your health. If your gut flora is unbalanced, that spells trouble. A healthy gut contributes to a strong immune system, heart health, brain health, better moods, restful sleep and better digestion. No matter what you're doing right now, you're probably not having nearly as much fun as this little guy. Meet Brazos, the 10-month-old elephant. Workers at the Fort Worth Zoo decided to bring in a bubble machine for him to play with. By the looks of it, he's having the time of his life. Zoo officials say this activity wasn't just for fun, it's also enriching for his curious mind. You can see his mother, Blue Bonnet, watching over him, apparently unfazed by the bubbles. Brazos already weighs nearly 1,100 pounds, which makes the pairing with lighter-than-air bubbles even more endearing. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.